Now tonight we're going to study about what Jesus said regarding the Word of God. I have in my hands the most precious treasure that anyone on planet earth could have. Even though today there are more Bibles in the hands of people than ever before in the history of the world, the moral condition of the world is worse than ever before in human history. And I believe that the reason why is because this book, this precious book, has been forgotten. It's sitting on the table or it's sitting on the shelf gathering dust. And people don't really realize or understand how precious this book is. This book is more precious than your home. It's more precious than your automobiles. It's more precious than the money that you have in the bank. It's more precious than the stocks and bonds that you own. It's more precious than the beautiful clothing that you've bought and worn. It's really a treasure house. You see, all of these things that I've mentioned will last only as long as this lifetime lasts. But if we are able to find the treasure of God in this book, we will be able not only to live on this earth and enjoy the few things that we have in this life, but we'll be able to live eternally with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. And so it's very important that we understand what this book has to tell us, and particularly what Jesus had to say. Now, I'd like to begin by saying that the Lord Jesus accepted the total and complete authority and trustworthiness of the Word of God. And I must clarify something. When Jesus was on this earth, there was no New Testament. Because after Jesus ascended to heaven, many years later, the New Testament was written. So whenever the Lord Jesus quoted Scripture, he was quoting from the Old Testament. It's interesting that Jesus constantly, while he was on earth, quotes the Scriptures. And he accepts them as of unquestionable authority, unquestionable trustworthiness. Please go with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19 and verse 24. John chapter 19 and verse 24. Here we're going to notice some prophecies of the Old Testament which were fulfilled specifically in Christ. Now I have here, I put it on the piano, a list of 50 messianic prophecies from the Old Testament which were fulfilled in Jesus. Tomorrow night, Lord willing, you will be receiving this list of 50 messianic prophecies. And basically, what this material has is it will present the text in the Old Testament, then it will present the text in the New Testament, it will give you the date in which the prophecy was given in the Old Testament, and it will give you when this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amazing prophecies that we find in the Bible which were fulfilled in Jesus. Notice John chapter 19 and verse 24. Here the Lord Jesus is hanging on the cross, and it says, They said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, that is, let's not tear his clothing, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And why did this take place? It says that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing 
they cast lots. See, that was an Old Testament prophecy which was written a thousand years before this happened. It's found in Psalm 22 and verse 18. Notice verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now this is a prophecy from Psalm 22 and verse 15, where it says that, that the mouth of Jesus would be dry and he would cry out for something to drink. I thirst. Written a thousand years before this event took place. Notice also verse 36 of this same chapter. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. This is a prophecy that comes from Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46 where the Passover lamb was slain, but its bones were never broken. Written 1,500 years before Jesus was sacrificed for us. And then notice verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. This is a prophecy that comes from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, written approximately 600 years before it takes place. One further prophecy, which is not on your list, which, but is very interesting. You remember when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you know that that is found in the beginning verse of Psalm 22? And actually the very words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? were written a thousand years before Jesus said them on the cross of Calvary. In other words, we find that Jesus fulfilled all of the details that we find recorded in the Old Testament. Now go with me to John chapter 5 and verse 39. John chapter 5 and verse 39. I want you to notice the concept that Jesus had, particularly of the scriptures of the Old Testament, which is the only Bible that our Lord Jesus had. John chapter 5 and verse 39. Here Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders of his day, and he says the following, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Notice Jesus says the scriptures testify about whom? About me, that is about Jesus. And then let's jump down to verse 45. Jesus says to these individuals, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. And now notice verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. About whom did Moses write? About Jesus. That's why Jesus quoted the Old Testament, because he was fulfilling every detail of the Old Testament in himself. Notice also in the Gospel of Luke, just a few pages earlier than the passage that we just read, in Luke chapter 24 and verse 25, there are two disciples that are walking to the town of Emmaus near Jerusalem. Jesus has died, he's been buried, their hopes have been dashed, and suddenly Jesus catches up to them and starts talking to them. And I want you to notice what Jesus says to them in verse 25. Then he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ 
to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And now notice this in verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He begins with Moses, he goes to all of the prophets and all of the scriptures, and he speaks about the things concerning himself. In other words, the scriptures of the Old Testament are a powerful revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus quoted the scriptures, because he was fulfilling them to the very letter. So he accepted the authority, the trustworthiness of scripture. Jump down to verse 44 now. Then he said to them, here Jesus is speaking, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning whom? Concerning me, Jesus says. So of whom did Moses write? Jesus. Of whom did the prophets write? Jesus. Of whom did the Psalms write? Jesus. And then it says in verse 45, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scripture. So the first point that we want to notice in our seminar tonight is that the Lord Jesus accepted the scriptures of his day, the Old Testament, as of unquestioned authority, unquestioned trustworthiness, because he fulfilled them to the very letter. But now we want to go to our second point, and that is that the reason why, according to Jesus, we must study the Word of God is because in the Word of God we find Jesus. In other words, we're supposed to study the Word of God not to discover facts, not to discover information. The purpose of searching the Word of God, of searching the Scriptures, is to discover a person. The purpose is to form a relationship with someone. The purpose of Bible study, of the study of the Word, is not to learn something, but to come to know someone. The importance of coming to the Bible is not to know the what we should believe, but in whom we should believe. Go with me to John chapter 5 and verse 39, which we already read, but let's notice uh, again a very particular and important detail that we find here. John chapter 5 and verse 39. Here Jesus is speaking to the leaders of his day, and he says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But now notice verse 40. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have what? Life. Isn't that ironic? You read, for example, the Gospels, the Jewish leaders. I mean, they studied, they knew the scriptures of the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They could quote Isaiah, they could quote Jeremiah, they knew what the rabbis had said, they had full information, fully knew the facts of the Old Testament. And yet, what did they miss? They missed the point. They failed to find in the scriptures Jesus. And so when we study the word of God, it's not enough to discover what God wants us to believe. It's necessary for us to come to know Jesus, for there is no salvation in any other name. So we come to the Bible to learn to love a person. Let me illustrate what I mean. How many of you 
have ever written a love letter. Ah, and the rest of you what? <laughs> I'll bet you there's a lot more people who have written love letters than the ones who raised their hands. But anyway, let me ask you, when you read a love letter from your spouse, can you somewhat catch the spirit behind the letter? Can you understand a little bit about that person? How that person thinks, how that person feels about you? Yes. In other words, through studying the letter, you learn a lot about what? The person. I mean, you're not interested in the facts of the letter. You're interested in what that person has to say to you. In coming to know the person better. You know, it's interesting. My wife, a very beautiful woman, thank goodness. Anyway, do you know that she still conserves in the closet the letters that I wrote her when we were going together almost 30 years ago? And when I read those letters, I say, yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Because sometimes I go and I take them out and I say, did I write that? Have mercy. I can't believe I wrote such a thing. But then I think I say, yeah. You know, back then, I remember what it was like. And so the letter is really ex an expression of me. It's an expression of her knowing me and me knowing her. And that's what Bible study should be all about. You see, Jesus is in heaven now. He's absent. And so the only way that we can really come to know him is through his love letter, the Bible. And so if we want to know about Jesus, we have to go through the letters that he has written us in his word so that we can come to know him personally. In other words, the Bible was not given to us with the intent of giving us facts and information. The Bible was given to us so that we can come to know Jesus, and by knowing Jesus, we can be saved. Go with me to John chapter 20, and we'll notice uh, what the Apostle John wrote about his book. John chapter 20 and verse 30, and we'll also read verse 31. It says there, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And then he's going to explain why he wrote these things. Verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have what? Life in his name. What is the purpose of studying the Bible? Is it information or is it salvation? Is it life in this world or is it eternal life in the world to come? It's the purpose of giving us eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's forming a relationship with Jesus who is the life so that as his life comes into us, we'll be able to live forever. Now another point that Jesus brought out when he spoke about the Word of God, is that the Word accomplishes that which it contains. Now let me explain what I mean. You read Psalm 33 and verse 6. It's not on your list. But there it says that the Creator spoke, and what happened? And what he spoke was enacted. 
or took place. In other words, his word contained in it what actually took place. For example, when he said, let there be light, those are only words, let there be light. But what the words said was accomplished. In other words, according to Jesus, the word of God accomplishes that which it says. Now, let's notice some examples of this in Scripture. We're not going to read all of these. The reason why I give you this list of texts is because I want you to go home, I want you to look up these Bible verses, and I want you to read them for yourselves. But notice in Mark chapter 4 and verse 39. Mark chapter 4 and verse 39. This is a beautiful concept that we're going to look at now. Mark 4 and verse 39. You remember that there was this tremendous storm on the lake. And the disciples were afraid that they were going to drown. And then they remembered that Jesus was in the boat. And so Jesus now stood up and he says these words. Verse 39. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Those are words, are they not? Let me ask you, did the words accomplish what they said? Yes. So when God's word speaks, does God's word accomplish what it says? Yes. When God makes a promise, will he fulfill that promise? Yes, he will. In fact, notice the last part of verse 39 says, And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. So what happens if you have turbulence in your life? Anybody have any turbulence in your life? Would you raise your hand if you've had turbulence in your life, problems, things that you want taken care of? Oh, there's lots of you that don't have any problems. I'll have to talk with you and discover what the secret is. But if we have storms in our lives, the Word of God can calm those storms because the Word of God promises it. Go with me to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16. I want you to notice several texts where it speaks about the Word accomplishing that which it says. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16. It says here, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits, how? With a word, and healed all who were sick. How did he cast out the demons? With a word. So when Jesus said to the demons, Get out! Did the word accomplish what it contained? Yes, the demons had to get out. Incidentally, do you know that the word of God, the word of Jesus also accomplished the resurrection of dead people? Yeah, for example, in John chapter 11 and verse 43, we're going to have a whole presentation on what the Bible has to say about life and death, what Jesus said about life and death specifically. But it's interesting in this story of the resurrection of Lazarus. He had been dead four days. Jesus comes to the tomb. They roll away the stone. And then Jesus looks at the entrance of the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Did his words accomplish what they set out to do? Yes, they did. There is power in the word, according to Jesus. And he not only taught it, but he also exemplified it in his life. Do you think there's power in the word for our lives today as well? If we take it to heart and we use it in a powerful manner? Absolutely. 
Now notice Isaiah 55. I mentioned that once in a while, once in a great while, we're going to go to other passages of Scripture because all Scripture is inspired by God. Notice Isaiah 55 and verses 10 and 11. On this same point that the Word of God accomplishes that which it states, that which it speaks. It says there in Isaiah 55 and verse 10, For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. What does that mean, it will not return to me void? It means that it's going to do what it says. It continues saying, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I what? Sent it. Is there power in this book or what? According to Jesus. Yes. And by the way, we have power of attorney. We're going to notice in a few moments that you can use this book in the name of Jesus. And then your word becomes as powerful as the word of Jesus because you're speaking the word of Jesus. Notice what we find in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to dwell a few moments on this. Matthew chapter 8 and verses 8 to 13. Matthew chapter 8 and verses 8 to 13. This is speaking about uh, a servant of a centurion who was sick. And I want to read actually starting at verse 5. It says there, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Notice what Jesus says. Don't worry, I'll come to your house and I'll heal him. Now notice the faith of this individual. Verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only, what? Speak a word, and my servant will be healed. In other words, only speak, and it will be done. Now notice the example that the centurion gives. He says, on a lesser scale, I do the same thing. Notice verse 9. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So what is he saying? saying, I have authority. When I speak, things happen. So if you, being far greater than me, having greater power, speaks, then what you speak can also be accomplished. Is that exactly what happened? Notice what it says in verse 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed in that same hour. This is a powerful book. This book is dynamite. That's why the devil hates this book, is because he knows that in this book, there is power to accomplish what it says. Now, another interesting thing about the word of, Christ, uh, word of God as depicted by Jesus is that this book 
has power to overcome temptation. You've probably read about the three temptations of Christ in the wilderness. The devil comes to Jesus. Jesus has fasted 40 days and 40 nights. By the way, it's found in Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus is hungry, the Bible says. And so the tempter comes and he says, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Let me ask you, could Jesus have used his power to turn those stones into bread? Could he have said, stones become bread? We just noticed he could have. Because he healed diseases by the word. He cast out demons by the word. He calmed storms by the word. He resurrected dead people by the word. So it wouldn't be any problem for him also to turn stones into bread. How did Jesus answer or answer the tempter? He says, it is written. We're going to notice towards the end of our presentation tonight that there's a very peculiar, interesting thing about Jesus. Do you know that Jesus never quoted any source other than Scripture? There were zillions of rabbis in his day, religious leaders, of God's chosen people. But Jesus never said, Rabbi Shammai says, or Rabbi Hillel says. Whenever Jesus spoke, he spoke with the authority of God's written word. And so Jesus says to the tempter, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Of course, the devil had to leave the authority of the word, but then he comes back. And by the way, do you know that the devil learns? The devil is a learner, a fast, quick learner. You remember when Jesus was baptized, a voice was heard from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The very next verse, Jesus is going to the desert to be tempted. Now the devil says, if you are the son of God. Immediately Jesus knew that this was the devil because his father had just said that he was the son of God. And now comes one saying, if you are the son of God. Jesus is saying, what do you mean if I'm the son of God? My father said I was. And so in the second temptation, the devil says, Oh, so he likes to live by the word, does he? And so the devil takes him to a temple tower, and he says, if you are the Son of God, jump. For in the Psalms, Psalm 91, there's a promise that God will send his angels to take you in their arms before you hit the ground. Ah, the devil can also quote the Bible. And so we have to check out things for ourselves. Do you know what the devil was doing? The devil was actually quoting part of Psalm 91, but he was forgetting the other part. And a text out of context is a pretext to teach error. You see, he was telling Jesus, claim the promise that if you jump, the angels are going to take you in their arms. But what he was omitting is that that promise could only be claimed by those who abided under the almighty wings of God. He was saying, disobey God, exhibit yourself, jump, and then claim the promise. It's kind of like praying before you go on a trip and, uh, and saying, Lord, protect me on this trip, and then driving 100 miles an hour. That's a sin of presumption. It's kind of like praying before you take a test if you haven't studied. I mean, that's a sin of presumption. It's claiming God's promises in disobedience. And Jesus immediately said, yes, it's true that the Bible says 
that he'll send his angels, but not when I'm disobeying the orders of God. Not when I cast myself down without my Father having asked me to do such a thing. So he says, so Jesus once again says, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then the devil took Jesus to the top of a mountain, showed him all of the kings of kingdoms of the world. And he says to Jesus, and by the way, we'll study this later on, he says to Jesus, all of these kingdoms I will give to you if you only bow down and worship me. And once again, Jesus says, it is written. And the devil had to flee from the presence of Jesus. There is power in this book to overcome temptation. I know it for a fact. When we fill our minds and our hearts with God's word, at the appropriate moment, those words will come out. You know what the problem is? Many times we don't know how to answer, it is written, because we don't know where it's written. Or even worse, many times we can't answer, it is written, because we don't even know if it's written. Have mercy. But when we know God's word, when it comes in, at the appropriate moment, it will come up out to overcome temptation. Let me give you an example. For about six years, by the way, I'm a missionary's kid. My parents were missionaries in South America for about 20 years. And I uh, had the privilege of teaching theology in a university down in the city of Medellin, Colombia. I'm sure that you've heard of Medellin. It's the in infamous Medellin, Colombia, of the Medellin cartel. Back then, they didn't have the problems that they had a little bit later on after we left. But anyway, I taught theology there, and one day, I was in a classroom where two of the students were giving me the hardest time that you could ever imagine. I mean, they were snickering, and they were talking, and, you know, I'd look at them, you know, real serious, and they would stop, and then I would start teaching again, and they, they were just having a jolly good time back there, totally ignoring what I was saying, being rude. And as they were doing that, the anger started building from the bottom up. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Are we on the same page here? <laughs> no, you don't know about that. You have perfect patience, right? But anyway, you know, the blood started coming up and up to the neck, to the head, and I was about to insult them and throw them out of class and be rude when suddenly... I heard as clear as day in my mind the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I thought, why in the world do these thoughts come to my mind here all of a sudden? Do you know that in my devotional for that morning, that is the exact passage that I have been studying? About how Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you know what happened? The blood went in reverse. From the head, it descended down the neck, into the shoulders, down my belly, down into my legs, and down into my feet. And it was all gone. And after the class, I called them, and I talked to them personally, but I didn't lose my temper. The Word of God, folks, when we put it in, when we study it, when we research it, when we know it, it has power to overcome temptation. Jesus also told us that the Word of God is like seed. Go with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter, 11, chapter 8, excuse me. Luke chapter 8, and let's read verse 11. 
Luke chapter 8 and verse 11. This is the famous parable of the sower. There's four soils in which the seed is planted. And depending on the soil, uh, the plant either grows and produces fruit or it doesn't. Now notice Luke chapter 8 and verse 11. It says, now the parable is this. The seed is what? The seed is the word of God. Now when you plant a seed, what do you want? What's the purpose of planting the seed? You want down the road what? Fruit. You know, I planted uh, several tomato plants in my garden this year in the spring. And for the first time uh, that I've ever planted anything, one of my tomato plants did not grow even one tomato. I mean, it was a huge plant. I mean, big. And it flowered. And when harvest time came, no tomatoes. What a mockery. I mean, the gall of that plant occupying that soil when there could have been a plant that produced fruit. But anyway, the purpose of planting a seed is for the seed to bear what? Fruit. Let me ask you, uh, when you go to the store and you buy that little package of corn seeds, and you, can open, you open the little envelope and there you have these beautiful corn seeds. Does that do any good? To take out the corn seeds from the little envelope and look at the corn seeds, oh, they're so beautiful, aren't they? What do you have to do? You have to take those corn seeds and you have to put them in the ground. And then through sunshine and through rain, the seed germinates, the plant grows, and eventually it bears fruit. You know the same is true with the Word of God. We just read that the Word of God is like what? is like seed, according to Jesus. This is a parable of Jesus. But the Word of God is no good in a bookcase. The Word of God is of no use on a table. One time an individual proudly took me into a study and he wanted to show me all of the versions of the Bible that he owned. And I was going to take out one of them from, from the, the stand. He says, oh, no, 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 don't take it out. Because... You know, it'll get old. You see, he wanted those Bibles brand new, just like he bought them. What's the use of having the Bible in a book, on a table, or in a bookcase? If the Word of God, according to Jesus, is seed, the seed must be what? Must be planted in the heart. In other words, you have to let it come through your eyes and through your ears. Let it come into your heart. And in that way, it'll start growing and it will produce fruit. Now, the question is, what is the fruit? Go with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And let's notice what the fruit is that the Word of God bears when we put it in our hearts. Galatians chapter 5 and verses 22 and 23. It says here the following. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. How many like love? Does that sound like something you like? You want? Okay. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy. How many of you like to be joyful? Like happy people? Praise the Lord. Peace. How many of you like peace? Pretty nice. Long-suffering. That means patience. 
Kindness. Do you like kind people? Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Against such, there is no law. So what is the fruit that comes into our life when the seed or the word of God is planted in our hearts? All of these beautiful fruits that we find that we've just read here in Galatians chapter 5. Does that sound like the kind of life that you would like to have? Then what do we need to do according to Jesus? The word must be planted in the heart. But Jesus also spoke of the word of God as food. Remember in the first temptation, Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, physical bread, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is that physical food represents spiritual food. As you need to be fed physically to be physically strong, you must be fed spiritually to be spiritually strong. How many of you are hungry right now? Well, there's a few of you. I'm not. Of course, I will be when I finish. After having expended all this energy. But let me ask you, have you ever had the experience where you're just terribly hungry and you come into a place where they're serving food and the food is sizzling and the smoke from the food is coming up. You can see the food, beautiful plate of food, and you can just smell that food. Mm, you can just eat it. Let me ask you, how much good does that do you? How much does that nourish you? How much does that nourish me? Listen, you cannot be nourished by aromas. You cannot be nourished by just looking at food on a plate. The food must be... You must take the fork, put the food on the fork, put the food in your mouth, chew it, swallow it, and digest it. And then it becomes part and parcel of your life, of your physical life. You know the same is true of spiritual food? What happens if we only eat junk food? We'll have junk health. We'll be physically weak. But what about spiritually? What if we eat only spiritual junk food? Then we will be spiritually what? Weak. Have you ever heard the expression garbage in and garbage out? That's the principle. You put garbage into a garbage can and what are the uh, people who come to pick up the garbage going to take out of the can? Garbage. What you put in comes out. Now, let me say that we eat physically through our mouth, but we eat spiritually through our eyes and through our ears. Through our eyes because we study the Word of God and through our ears because we hear presentations on the Word of God. Jesus spoke of His Word as manna. You know what manna is? Experience in the Old Testament. Remember Israel? They were in the wilderness 40 years according to the Bible. How could they survive in the desert 40 years? Well, the Lord opened up His heavenly bakery 
And the Bible says that he rained down manna from heaven. And every morning, and we'll take a look at this a little bit more closely later on in this seminar, but every day the people would go out and they would pick up the manna and they would eat and they were physically strong. The Bible says that none of them had any disease in the desert. They were physically in tip-top shape. And yet, after the 40 years in the wilderness, all of them had what? Had died. In other words, physical manna had strengthened them physically for a while, but then they died. But Jesus says, listen, I have a manna that if you eat it, you won't die forever. And that manna is my word. Now what's more important then? To sit down and eat our physical food? Or is it even more important to sit down and eat our spiritual food? You know, lots of people uh, in this world, they eat from the Bible like they eat from the plate. Fast food. We're rushed. You know, we go to a place, we get the food, we gobble it up, and it's back on the road again. But you know, we can't do that with the Bible. We have to sit down, calmly, slowly, put the food, spiritually speaking, in our mouth or in our eyes, our ears, think upon it, digest it, so that it becomes part of our very fiber. Now, another thing that Jesus spoke about the Word of God is, as I mentioned before, Jesus never once in the Gospels quotes, quotes any of the rabbis. That's unusual, because we have writings from that period where rabbis were quoting rabbis inside and out. I mean, they depended more on the traditions of the elders than they depended upon the Word of God. But interestingly, in the four Gospels, Jesus never appealed to the writings of the authorities of his day. He always appealed to Scripture. Go with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 7, and verses 28 and 29. Matthew, chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And I want to show you the distinction between Jesus and the scribes of his day. By the way, when you find the word scribes in the Gospels, it's referring to the theologians of Christ's day. These are the theological experts. These are the experts in Bible interpretation. Notice verse 28. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. What were the people? They were what? Astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having what? authority and not as the scribes. Why did Jesus have authority and the scribes did not have authority? Go with me to Mark chapter 7. There we have the explanation, folks. And that's the reason why there's so little power, even in the Christian world today, is because we have adopted the traditions of man instead of the word of God. We try to justify things that the church does by what this theologian quotes, and by this theologian says, instead of simply going and taking God at his word. Notice Mark chapter 7, this is speaking about a tradition that the Jewish elders had, that you know, every time you go to a meal, uh, you have to wash four times. That was the tradition of the day. You know, you came in, you washed your hands, sat down, and when you, had, you would eat your first course, because they served the food by courses, 
Then you would get up ceremoniously from the table, you would go wash your hands again, then you would come and sit down and participate in the next course. When you were finished with that course, you had to get up and you had to go and wash your hands ceremonially again, and then and come sit down, and finally when you had your dessert, you would get up, you would wash your hands, and come back again. It was a ceremonial system that had been developed by the scribes and by the elders of Christ's day. What did Jesus have to say about these customs and traditions and practices which were not based upon the word of God? Notice Mark chapter 7 and verse 7. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Don't forget this. We're going to come back to it in a moment. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And then he says this, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is serious stuff. Jesus says that when you teach the commandments of men, this is worshiping God how? In vain. It's to worship God with our lips, but not with our hearts. And then notice verse 13. Making the word of God of no effect. That means annulling the power of the word of God through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now what did Jesus then say about how to study God's word? Some principles in closing this evening. And I'll just mention some of these. We won't read them. In Matthew 13, verse 44, it speaks about a field where there's a treasure buried. How many of you have found fields recently that have a buried treasure? What would you do if you discovered a field in Fresno that had a buried treasure and the lot was for sale? Would you do everything possible to buy the field? Because you know the treasure is there? Absolutely. I'll bet you you would sell everything you had in order to get the treasure. But do you know what? The Lord Jesus says that in this book, this is the field, the book is the field, in this book there are treasures. Now let me ask you, if you're walking by a field, would you ever know that there are treasures in that field? No, what do you have to do? You have to dig. If you see a Bible on a stand, closed, can you know that in that book there are treasures? No. What do you have to do? You have to open the book and you have to be willing to give it all up to buy the treasure that is contained in this book. A second principle that Jesus taught is that we must always pray when we study God's Word. Go with me to John chapter 14 and verse 26. John chapter 14 and verse 26. I want you to notice uh, what Jesus says here about the importance of the Holy Spirit. By the way, who was the person who inspired the Bible? It was the Holy Spirit, right? So the only person who really knows the meaning of the Bible is the one who gave it. And so when we're going to study the Bible, we have to pray to ask the Spirit to help us understand what he gave in the first place. Notice what it says in John 14 and verse 26. Jesus is speaking, but the Helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things 
and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Who is it that brings to remembrance everything that Jesus said? The Holy Spirit. That's why before we open God's word, as we did last uh, this evening, Elder Finn began our program with a word of prayer to ask the Lord to bless our study this evening. Now let's turn to Luke chapter 11 and verse 28. Luke chapter 11 and verse 28. Very important verse. You see, when Jesus was ministering to the multitudes, there was this certain lady that had something interesting to say uh, to Jesus. Actually, she blurted it out in public. It says there in Luke 11, and starting with verse 27, And it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. In other words, how wonderful a privilege for your mom to call you son. What did Jesus say? Verse 28, but he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and what? And keep it. You see, not only should we be willing to give all to find the treasure, if necessary, not only should we pray according to Jesus for the help of the Holy Spirit so that we don't reach the wrong conclusions in our study of the Bible, so that we understand the mind of the Spirit, but Jesus also says that we are supposed to hear the Word of God and what? And do it. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7 and verses 21 to 26. Very important passage. By the way, this is speaking about the end times. Do you think that we're living in the end times? By what you're seeing in the world? I'm going to share some amazing things in this seminar with you. Signs that indicate clearly that Jesus is even at the door. And let me just give you a little inkling of one point which shows me that Jesus is soon to come. And we'll be studying this more in our fourth lecture. Have you seen the tremendous increase in the occult in this world today? It is amazing. You know, you look at the whole Old Testament and you don't find any reference, hardly at all, to the powers of the occult demon possession and things like that. But when Jesus is about to come, suddenly the whole world of darkness enters into action and there's demon-possessed people all over the place. Why? Because Jesus has come to contest the authority of Satan. So when Jesus comes in his first coming, there's tremendous increase in the working of the occultic world of demons. That must mean that if Jesus is going to come soon for the second time, and the occult has grown tremendously, it's because the devil knows that Jesus is going to come back to set up his kingdom, and he feels like that kingdom is being contested by Jesus. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Very important passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Not, anyone who, not everyone who says what? Lord, Lord, who says Lord, Lord, are these Christians? They must be, because if they're not Christians, why would they be saying Lord, Lord? 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, notice this is the day of the end, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Notice, in his name. Cast out demons in your name? And done many wonders in your name? These are Christians. They claim to be Christians because they're doing it in the name of Jesus. And then it says in verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then Jesus is going to give a parable to illustrate what he means. He's going to give this famous parable of the man who built his house upon the rock. You know, we have that little song that the children sing. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And I can see some of you, uh, you know, singing the song with your lips. So you're not as courageous as I am. You're still here, praise the Lord. And then there's a foolish man who builds his house on what? On the sand. What does it mean to build on the rock? What does it mean to build on the sand? Notice verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, hears and what? And does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. What does it mean to be built on the rock? It means to hear the words of Jesus and what? And do them. But then we have the other side of the coin. Verse 26. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. They are the sayers, not the doers. Remember what we just read about prophesying in his name, etc.? And so it says, now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell in great was its fall. So we have very simple principles. Be willing to invest all you have to find the treasure in God's word. You have to research, you have to study. Secondly, pray to ask for the Lord's guidance. Because the Holy Spirit who gave the word is the only one who is able to explain it. So we must pray before we open God's word. Third, when we read or study God's word, we must be willing to what? We must be willing to do it. And finally, in John 7, verse 17, which I want you to read when you get home, Jesus tells us how we can know whether a, per a person's teaching is of God or, of, or not. He says, everyone who wants to do his will will know the teaching whether it is of God or not. In other words, when we study the Bible, we must study the Bible with a sincere heart to know what God's will is. So Jesus had a lot to say about the word of God, didn't he? Jesus basically told us that as we live physically by the food we eat, we live spiritually also by the spiritual food that we eat. Here is where we find 
the real reason why our society is so immoral, starting from the common person on the street all the way up to the leaders of our country. It's because people are dying of spiritual starvation because they are not consuming the Holy Word of God. May God bless us and help us in this seminar so that as we study God's Word, we will receive it into our hearts and we might come to know Jesus personally as our Savior and Lord and we might grow in our relationship with Him and we might be spiritually strong so as not only to live in this life, but to live eternally with Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus to this world to teach us and to die for our sins. Yet how many times, Lord, we've just put your word aside and forgotten it. Help us to catch a vision of the importance of sitting down and partaking of a banquet from your word. Help us to go to that word, to study it, to make it part of our very fiber, and to implement its principles in our lives. We thank you for having been with us, and we ask that you will be with us also in the rest of this seminar. You will bring us all back safely tomorrow to study about the beautiful subject regarding the love of God. We thank you, Lord, for answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.